All right, would you please take your Bibles now for our consideration of the Scriptures, and we're turning this evening to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This beautiful chapter of the Scriptures, the Apostle Paul deals very specifically with the absolute security of the believer in Jesus Christ. He begins with this emphatic statement, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he ends with the blessed assurance that there will be no separation, nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us from the love of God. Now, I would like us to consider verses 31 through the end of the chapter, and I'll I'll just be touching on the first parts of it, but would you follow with me? As I read, beginning in verse 31. What shall we, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Apostle Paul throws out these five questions or challenges, which there is no responding answer. And then he breaks out, as Calvin said, into an exclamation He reaches the climax at the end when he speaks of the separation of God's love, that there is no separation with God's love. Now, I want to consider these five challenges or questions, but we'll just touch on each one and then dwell a bit more on this last part of this section we just read. The first thing he asks is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the force of his argument here is contained in the clause, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? You see, once you bring the faithful, loving, omnipotent God into the equation, all of the insurmountable obstacles and forces against us become impotent, powerless against this God. 
there's such a disproportion that it hardly seems like a fair fight. Uh, but we're not trying to even the odds here. We want an overwhelming victory, which the Apostle Paul assures us that we have. If God is for us, who can be against us? Once He's on your side, you really don't have anything to worry about. It doesn't mean you can be careless and, and unwatchful, but it does mean that you can have this assurance that He will secure what he, is, what he has set out to do. The second challenge or question is found in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Again, the, the force of the argument here is found in the first part of the statement. That if he didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us, he delivered him up for us, then the following has to be true. If he would give us his son, surely he will provide everything we need for life and godliness, for time and for eternity. It's the same argument delivered up as the same argument uh, that was used of Judas and of the high priest and of even Pilate who handed Jesus over to death. And that's what He's saying if God Himself delivered up His Son for us, delivered Him up, that is, to death, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? That's an argument, you see, from the greater to the lesser. You see, his, if He's willing to do the one, then surely He'll do the much lesser of the two. The love of God, you see, is not some... Uh, simply God emitting good feelings towards us or showing us some kinds of warm feelings. No, the love of God is tangible. It's demonstrable. It, it involves doing something. He, he showed His love. It's something that can be seen. You can actually point to it. Uh, people can talk all day long about the love of God, but they can't even explain it. They can't even show any evidence of it. But here is the undeniable evidence of His love that while we were yet sinners, as Paul said in an earlier chapter, Christ died for us. It's right there. The most wonderful and excellent demonstration of love the world has ever seen is when God delivered up His own Son for us. What an amazing thought that God would deliver up for us, sinners. And that's his argument in chapter 5, that if, if, God, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, how much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. That was the preeminent demonstration of His love right there, giving Him up for sinners who deserve nothing but His wrath and punishment. And then the third challenge is in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And He certainly has justified them. That is, He has declared them righteous on account of His own Son. Yes, they are guilty of sin. They deserve God's punishment. But that same guilt and deserving of punishment was transferred to His Son or imputed to His Son 
and in him he poured out his wrath, and then he took his own righteousness and imputed that to us. They didn't declare themselves righteous. Many will do that. They trust in themselves that they are righteous and view others with contempt. But these are not those who declare themselves righteous. It's God who does that. He is the one who declares them righteous. It's the scene of a courtroom. And the opening verse in this chapter is is like the, the gavel or the judge as he pronounces the sentence. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And so he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, there are many who would bring charges against us who would point their finger and say, look at that or look at this in them. Charles Spurgeon said, I know what the devil will say to you. He'll say, you're a sinner. Tell him you know you are. (laughs) And that for all that, you are justified. He will tell you of the greatness of your sin. Tell him of the greatness of Christ's righteousness. He will tell you of all your mishaps and your backslidings and your offenses and your wanderings. Tell him and tell your own conscience that you know all that, but that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And that although your sin be great, Christ is quite able to put it all away. It is God who justifies. So, the, the, the logic of it is that if God justifies, it doesn't really matter who condemns. And then the fourth one we find in verse 34, who is he who condemns? Well, he says it's Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen. Well, Christ died for our sins. He was condemned for us. And He is the judge of the earth. God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has appointed, namely Jesus Christ. He is the judge. He is the one who will judge the world in righteousness. But He's the same one who died for us. And yea, rather, He says, or furthermore, He's also risen. He's risen from the dead. The resurrection of Christ has been called God's Amen to the person and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection proved that Jesus was everything He claimed to be and that He accomplished everything He said He came to this earth to accomplish, to give His life a ransom for many. That's what Jesus said He came to do. The Apostle Paul said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So the resurrection is God's amen to His finished work on the cross. Great Princeton theologian Benjamin Warfield said, it's only because He rose from the dead that we know that the ransom He offered was sufficient, the sacrifice was accepted, and that we are His purchased possession. There were no resurrection from the dead As Paul said, you'd still be in your sins. But the the opposite is true. He was raised from the dead. Therefore, we know that our sins have been pardoned. That the payment was accepted. It's only because He rose from the dead that we can partake of this supper tonight with gladness. 
This supper points to the payment for our sin. This is the broken body. Broken for you. This is the shed blood. Shed blood for you. And then Paul also not only speaks of his death, his resurrection, but his ascension to the right hand of God. He says he is even at the right hand of God. John Calvin said the right hand of God is meant that he possesses dominion over heaven and earth and full power and rule over all things. That's what it means to be at his right hand. But he's not just simply idle at the right hand of God. He said he's also doing what? Making intercession for you. Making intercession for us. He is the great intercessor. He is praying for us on our behalf. <clears throat> Remember, that's what John says in First John chapter 2, verse 1. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if any man sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate, like a lawyer, but a very, very good lawyer. A lawyer with all the integrity you could imagine. But he's the one who's pleading on our behalf. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, he says, He's also able to save them to the uttermost that come to him by God, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. But remember what he pleads when he prays for us. What he pleads before the Father's throne. He's not pleading our goodness. That you know they're really not so bad after all. He can't plead that because he knows us through and through. He knows our sins. He knows our thoughts from afar off. He knows that even our righteousness is as filthy rags in his sight. He can't plead our righteousness, can he? He can't plead even our extenuating circumstances that, you know, they really are living in a pretty awful place with so many temptations all around. They just couldn't help it. Or, you know, he had a bad day. He was tired and he just let loose some words that he shouldn't have used. No, he doesn't plead extenuating circumstances. No, he pleads the merits of his sacrifice. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They, those wounds, pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. What do they plead? Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. It's what he has done. That's what he pleads. And that's the sacrifice that God has accepted and has shown that he's accepted it by raising him from the dead. Octavius Winslow said this, the, the mediatorial work of Christ shuts every mouth, meets every accusation, and ignores every indictment that can be brought against those for whom He died, rose again, and ascended on high, and makes intercession. Oh, what a glorious triumph does Christ secure to the weakest saint who stands in faith upon this rock. Isn't that a wonderful, solid rock to stand upon? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. But this is a solid rock. We are secure. And then the fifth question. Who shall separate us from the love of God? 
who shall separate us from the love of Christ, he says uh, in verse 35. And then he throws out these various things, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. He's bringing out everything he can find that someone might use to think, well, maybe this would separate me. Now, notice he's speaking here of the special love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. His special saving love. You could argue that God has a general love and benevolence for all men, which is true. We believe that there is this common grace, this common love. Jesus told us, didn't he, that we are to even love our enemies and do good to them that we may be like our Father in heaven. What does he do for his enemies? Well, he does many good things for them. Many good things. More things than they could even imagine. The goodness of God is poured down upon them even in a literal way. He sends His rain on the just and the unjust. And His sun shines on both the just and the unjust. And yet Paul could not say that nothing would ever separate men from God's general love and kindness. You see, one day... All of that will be stripped away. It will be taken away for them, taken away from them forever. Right now, they do enjoy the goodness of God. Even when they don't acknowledge it, they enjoy it. But there's coming a day when they will not enjoy that love again. But here, he says that absolutely nothing will ever separate us the children of God, from His special saving love. The love He has in Jesus Christ. So the the believer is absolutely secure in the love of God. Also, remember, when He speaks of the love of Christ, he's He's referring to His love toward us and not our love towards Him. He's not affirming the great love of the Christian to Christ, but of the great love of Christ toward the Christian. And thankfully, he's speaking of that and not our love to him. You see, this alone is the ground of our confidence, the constancy of his love to us. Because our love, we know all too well, fluctuates. It gets cold. It gets damp. It seems lifeless at times. It seems like it's hanging on by a thread at other times. But His love is constant and unchangeable. The unchangeableness of God is one of His most blessed attributes because we know His love will never change. He never wakes up in the morning feeling cold or dead towards us as we so often do to Him. Paul wants to leave no rock unturned. And so that's why he he brings forth this list. He brings up all the would-be separators or those that would challenge the love of God. He mentions these seven possibilities. He says, um, shall tribulation or distress or persecution and so forth. Tribulation, that's suffering that's brought about by often by outward circumstances. Distress is pressures brought out by Outward and inner problems. We feel distress. We feel uh, the pain inside. 
the discouragement, the depression. Even that doesn't separate us from the love of God. We may be separated from a sense of his love, but the love is still there. It's there the same as the sun is shining on a dark, cloudy day. The sun is shining above the clouds. You get into a plane and on a, on a rainy day, you take off and you come through the clouds and now you're into the sunlight again. His love is always there. Fightings within, fears without. His love is the same. And Paul knew what he was talking about. He had gone through more fightings and troubles within and without than any man besides Jesus Christ. But these adverse circumstances which all face we all face in some measure are not signs of any lack of love on his part. And then he quotes <clears throat> uh, from uh, he quotes from Psalm forty four. 22, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. You see, these adversities are nothing new for the people of God. They've been the experience of all generations. In a sense, now all men experience troubles, whether they're Christians or not. Job says a man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. But here he's referring to Christian suffering. And Christians do suffer. And they suffer sometimes more than other men. You thought becoming a Christian was going to relieve you of your troubles. But no, you find many more. And many difficulties that you didn't even have before you were a Christian. And some of those are for his sake. The quotation here alludes to the fact that it's for his sake we experience these afflictions. Persecuted for His sake. This sheds a completely different light upon sufferings and persecution which Christians experience. It's for His sake that we're persecuted all day long. Will any form of persecution or degree of persecution cause Him to turn away His love from us? Far from it. God is nearer to those who are suffering persecution than we would ever imagine. When the Apostle Paul was breathing out these murderous threats against the disciples of Christ, he comes to him on that road to Damascus and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He so identifies with the sufferings of his people that he says, when you persecute them, you persecute me. It's for his sake we're persecuted. No former degree of persecution will drive his love away from us. Far from it. When Paul spoke of persecution, I know he must have thought it was never too far from his mind that road to Damascus when he heard those words. Be of good cheer. Your cause belongs to him, to him who can avenge your wrongs, the hymn writer put it. And then in verses 37 and following, he says, Yet... In all these things, these tribulations and so forth, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. He uses now the metaphor of this conquering warrior. John Murray calls it a felicitous rendering, a well-suited expression, because it stresses a superlative victory. 
appearance to the contrary places the reality, he says, Murray said, uh, appearance to the contrary places the reality and completeness of the victory in bolder relief. Martyrdom seems to be a defeat. And so it is regarded by the perpetrators. Look what we've done to them. Too often we look upon the outcome of the conflict with the forces of iniquity as mere escape, perhaps by the skin of our teeth. In truth, Murray says, it is a victory. And that that not merely, but completely and gloriously. We know so little of that kind of persecution. But you know, and you've heard other preachers besides me say it, that we're heading for those days again. When Christians will be persecuted again, we never thought we'd see it in our own life. But it could happen to us. And we need to understand that that's no sign that He forsakes us. If a person is thrown into prison, that's not a sign that God has forsaken them or He has ceased to love them. No, He is with them and will bring about the victory even if it's in their death. And notice the completeness of of it. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That is, in all the things He's mentioned, it's an unqualified victory. Unbelievable, asked John Murray. Yes. Indeed, were it not for the transcendent factors perceived only by faith. It's only because God is on our side. That's our faith. God is working these things together for our good. To all those who love God and are called according to His purpose. It's through Him who loved us, He says. The victory we have is not in any way in ourselves, but through Him. Martin Luther knew it well. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Again, Murray says it so well. He says, we may well have staggered at the superlative terms in which this victory has been described. Here we have the explanation and validation. It's only through Him who loved us. This is the transcendent factor which contradicts all appearance and turns apparent defeat into victory. God is in control of all these things. Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, all rule and authority has been given to Him, and He is overseeing the whole thing. And not one thing is out of place. Not one thing has escaped His notice or left His control. Look a bit more closely at this verb, loved. Through Him who loved us. It's the aorist tense in the Greek. It refers to a completed action in the past, but has continuing effects. It's not in the present tense, not Him who loves us, or Him who loved us in the past, but no longer does. He's referring to the love of Christ when He offered Himself up on the cross. Now, the present abiding love of Christ is still there. But it points us again to the reality and the the greatness and the concreteness of His love toward us. When He gave Himself up for us on the cross. When He laid down His life for His friends. 
Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in verse 38, Paul reaches this climax of his argument. I am convinced or I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities and so forth will separate us from the love of God. Now he's using the, the perfect tense, which he means I have, I have become and remain to this day convinced. Notice how comprehensive he is as he as he's searching in vain for something strong enough, something powerful enough to separate us from the love of God. He says, neither death nor life. Death is strong. Death is final. But death doesn't separate us from the love of God. Neither does life. Death nor life. Angels or principalities. And this is most likely here referring to both the good angels and the evil spirits. He's going to extremes here. Going to the extreme of the angels in heaven or the demons in hell. Not any of these will separate us. Nor height, nor depth, heaven or earth, nothing, any other created thing. You see, he's all, he's all comprehending everything. He's looking at everything around. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is the exclusiveness of His love. It only exists in Jesus Christ. It's only in Him has it been manifest. Only in Him is it operative. And it's only in Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we can know and embrace this love. Murray says how, uh, I'm sorry, Charles Hodge said how wonderful how glorious, how secure is the gospel. Those who are in Christ Jesus are as secure as the love of God, the merit, power, and intercession of Christ can make them. They are hedged around with mercy. They are enclosed in the arms of everlasting love. That's a theologian writing. People talk about theologians being cold and dead. Oh, they were full of an understanding of the love of God. You see, that's what we're building our hope on. Is on the unchanging, omnipotent love of God in Christ Jesus. And He demonstrated it to us. You begin to doubt it, you look back to the cross. I know I sound like a broken record, but that's one of the reasons He gave us the Lord's Supper. To remind us, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. To bring our minds and our hearts and our faith back to Him. And make sure it's squarely placed where it belongs. Oh, everything else wants to pull it out of our hands. But it's only here that we can have a firm grip on the love of God. And it's not our grip on His love, but His love gripping us. And holding on tight. He who trusts in God's unchanging love builds on the rock that naught can move. Let's pray.